Welcome to part two of the KAI Foundation 5 podcast series, our five-part introduction to building better teams and great leaders with the Curtain Adaption Innovation Inventory. KAI is the world's foremost measure for problem-solving style. It's used widely to create cohesive and productive teams and effective leaders. It's been in use for about 40 years and is supported by a large body of academic research from around the world. And in these five podcasts, we want to provide you with an understanding of why KAI is so effective, why it's so powerful, and indeed can be life-changing for so many teams and team leaders. Today's second episode is entitled Big Problems Need Better Teams. And during the next half an hour or so, we're going to discuss problem-solving style and why, for teams to be effective, we need diversity in that style. We'll also look at how KAI measures that diversity, how we know it works, the proof and the rigour, if you will, and the importance of creativity, whatever your problem-solving style happens to be. My name is Dave Harris, and joining me from the United States and Canada to talk about all of this, I have two expert guests. Dr. Kurt Friedel is Associate Professor and Director of the Center for Cooperative Problem Solving at Virginia Tech in the USA, where he is also the Director of the KAI Certification Course. Dr. Ewan Jenkins is also a KAI expert and describes himself as a practitioner of the practical. He understands cognitive theory and complex system science, but more importantly, he also knows how to make that theory applicable in today's business world. In his own words, he turns potential into profit. So welcome, gentlemen, to this second podcast in the series. As we are talking about today about problem-solving styles, amongst other things, I wonder if we could start with that. Maybe we'll start with you, Kurt, and you could tell us what is problem-solving style? What does that really mean? Sure. Thanks, Dave. If, if we go back to the essence of a problem, meaning something isn't working well or we need to get from point A to point B, in the broadest sense, something's not working, a system's not working, and problem-solving style is a preference of how to solve the problem, not how well we can solve the problem. So it, it's a separation from what we would call level or intelligence and capacity and contrast that with a style. So the more innovative prefer to think differently and, and would opt to swap out the system. So if a policy or procedure isn't working well, uh, let's stop doing this right now and start doing something else right away. They prefer to focus on different wide-ranging views of, of how to fix the system. The more adaptive would prefer to fix the system or get from point A to point B with more detail and focus, often with inside-the-box thinking, to tweak the system to make it better. If a system isn't working, it's an improvement that they focus on to make the system work better. And so we can all solve problems equally well, but we have a different style in solving problems. And we can measure this style on, on a continuum ranging from 32 to 160 on the KAI. The average or the mean score of the KAI is 95. It's a normal distribution that cuts across uh, many demographic variables, such as socioeconomic status, age, culture, ethnicity, uh, and so on. People who score from 95 to 160 tend to be more innovative in their preference for solving problems, and people who score between 95 and 32 tend to be more adaptive. But I will say that maybe how you identify as a problem solver more 
adaptive or more innovative, but it's much more about who you're with in the room. So let's say, for example, I'm a 110 as a more innovative, and this, this is just an example, and I'm in the room with a 120 and a 145. Me as a 110, I'm the most adaptive person in the room. So it's comparative or, or relative, and, and it works on the other side. So if uh, we have someone who is an 85, uh, let's say, for example, I'm an 85, and I'm in the room with a 74 and, let's say, a 57. I'm the most innovative person in the room, so it's relative to who I'm with. Ewan, is it difficult to measure this i mean the, the, presumably there's a there's a there's a technique a method for measuring what somebody's problem solving style is where they are where they are on the curtain scale how do you do that and how do you know that your your answer the number you get for a particular person how do you know that's reliable as kurt has said that there's been substantial amount of research now around how does an individual understand what their preferred problem-solving style is. Am I one who likes to, as Kurt was saying, think outside of the box, or am I one who prefers to have more structure and manage, manage the risk around the way that I solve my problems? And what Curtin has done is he has developed what he calls an inventory, uh, which is 33 questions, takes about 15 minutes to complete, and you answer you answer those uh, 33 questions and then you get a score which then places you on this spectrum again from 32 all the way up to 160 and one of the things that Curtin has done is he's taken data samples from around the world and shown that this mean of 95 is consistent with any population regardless of culture so, for example, now you may well have societies like uh, the United Kingdom or the United States where high levels of innovation, doing things differently are, are valued. Um, and so you may say, OK, well, the mean for that population then would be somewhere between 95 and 160 They're on the relatively more innovative side. But in fact, the mean for that for the general population in the United States and the United Kingdom is 95. Likewise, if you went to Japan, which is very structured in terms of the way the organizations work, in terms of their academics and so on and so forth, you'd say, well, they are so structured, so tightly bound to policies and procedures that the mean for the Japanese population would be on the more adaptive side, let's say 80, for example. But it's not. It's 95. And so one of the things that Curtin's Adaptive Innovative Inventory is measuring is it lies below culture, and therefore it's consistent with human beings around the world. That's what the data says. And presumably that's what makes it so powerful, that it is that you know it, it just works. Whoever you are, whatever your culture, whatever your background, whatever your education, it's going to work. Correct. So, so, the, uh, so the, the powerful point is here that it's applicable with whoever you're working. And the drivers that we were talking about earlier, that I want to be uh, valued as a problem solver, I want to be part of a problem solving group, and I want to be recognized within the problem solving group. Wherever you are in the world, if you're a human being, if you're a member of the human species, those drivers are the same. Now, this podcast, this episode, number two, is called Big Problems Need Better Teams. So I think it's about time we addressed what a better team is. What do we mean by that? So what are we talking about when we talk about a better team? A better team is really a team that has a wide spectrum of diversity 
and embraces that diversity. So there's no second-class citizenry on the team. It's a team that has a place where people can come together in safety to share ideas, whether those ideas are more adaptive or more innovative, and, and a coming together uh, to decide on what is the best solution to move forward in solving problem A and mitigating that diversity as, as things pop up from here and there so that focus can be maintained on problem A. Leadership in a team, and notice I use the word leadership, not leader. Leadership is when people come together to solve the problem together, managing or embracing the diversity so that the right person can focus at the right time to effectively solve problem A. So I understand what we mean by a better team, but you um, and I wonder if you could give me some examples of how that actually works in practice, some r real life teams, if you like, that have been successful, that have been better because of this diversity. To answer that question, let's talk about sailing ships across the Atlantic. If we look at adapters, adapters are always wanting to take the existing and improve them. So things, are, if you work in industry, things like Six Sigma, this, this aspect of continuous improvement, is very important in terms of how do we make things better based on what's worked in the past, because what's worked in the past has shown us some indication about how things can work successfully at the lowest risk. For many years, goods were being shipped across the Atlantic between the UK and the United States by sailing ships. There were forever improvements in terms of the sail design, the material that went into the sails then to uh, make them lighter but still keep the strength. For the different kinds of, different kinds of pitches to go on the outsides of the ship that would then prevent fouling so that there would be no growth on the outside of the ship so that the ship then would be able to sail faster and faster across the Atlantic. These small tweaks of continuous improvement are very much associated then with a creative, adaptive way of solving problems. How do we make things better? And then somebody came up with uh, a steamship but the problem was the first steamships would often sink because the amount of coal that was required to keep the steamships going was actually detrimental then to the buoyancy of the boat. But over time, these steamships that were invented by high innovators were starting to attract the interest of the more adaptive who would then improve the idea, make it practical, and eventually then these steamships then were crossing the Atlantic faster than the sailing ships. And so one of the things that you see then is the more adaptive tend to wait too late to make a shift to different and better technology. And the more innovative jump to alternative out of the box often too early. So what you're really looking for then are a balance then of adapters who are improving the status quo and innovators who are looking about the next thing, but they work collaboratively to do continuous improvement of the more radical stuff as they go along. But that's not always easy because these diverse teams actually come at cost. Because if I want to do things differently, I look at you as an adapter as being an anchor that's weighing me down, being boring and stuffy. If I'm an adapter looking at you as a high innovator, I see you as always being wanting to do too, too much too soon, being radical for the sake of being radical. 
And so in team leadership, you're always looking about how do we make the most of the diversity to solve the problem that we're looking at, the problem A, but working with each other and valuing each other's contribution in such a way that we minimize the dysfunction or the problem B within the organization. I'll add, it's a bit of a paradox, right? We, we need each other to solve complex problems, but we don't get along so well, uh, especially if we have a difference in problem-solving style and solving the problem. So uh, is there ever a situation where people are too far apart on the scale, you know, that they can't work together, or, 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 can, or, does, or is there always a way of making it work? So when you have a team who has a diversity of problem-solving style scores, uh, the team functions well when first there's a focus on problem A and second uh, when there's mutual respect and humility involved of, of all the team players and so with that mutual respect of I respect you and, and your diversity of thought and what you bring to the team if you respect me and my diversity of thought and what I bring to, to the team to create that safe space of having ideas but also the humility of I know what I can do and not do well and rely on you to cover for me on the things I can't do well. Going back to your question of the size of the gap, if there is a sizable gap but there's mutual respect and humility, the greatness of that team is they can solve a wider variety of problems because they can rely on each other to, to focus uh, on all problems that could possibly happen uh, with spin-off problems and such. Uh, the narrower the team, if you have individuals who score very closely together, they get along well, but the depth and, and breadth of problems that they can solve is limited. Because they see all the problems the same way, they don't know when to adapt, when adaption is needed, or need to innovate, when innovation is needed. So, so it comes back to this phrase, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go further, go as a team. And again, but if you go as a team, let me tell you, you have to bite your tongue. You get irritated when you're in the car together and somebody needs to wants to stop and pull over and open up the flask and have some batter breath or some cake. But collectively, you go together. So there's a cost in, as an individual then for tolerating other people. But you need to then say to yourself, is the investment I'm making worth the return I'm getting? As Kurt was saying, you can have a group of high innovators who then started a business together, and it is fantastic. You have a great time. Every day is a party, but eventually you'll run out of cash. If you have a group of high adapters then running a business, stuff will get done, but eventually you will start to see a sales reduction because other better, more innovative products coming along uh, and will start to steal your market share. So you're always looking then to have, again, the diversity, the diversity approach. You're looking, as somebody once said to me, the beauty of having a diverse team is that you can have radical innovation that delivers. But it's not always an easy place to work. Can I ask you, Ewan, about creativity? Creativity is obviously important in problem solving. And to the layman, or perhaps perhaps it's lazy thinking on my part, but but it's easy to think, isn't it, that creativity is somehow tied up very closely with innovation but that's not true is it no no and so part of this is is, is down to the definition if you laud creativity as somebody who happens to be very successful in the arts or the tv 
you are basically saying to 95% of the population, you are not creative. That is also not right in terms of dismissing the 95% of the population in terms of their problem-solving capability, but it's actually incorrect. Because if you solve a problem, and it doesn't matter about the nature of the problem, it doesn't matter how simple the problem is, whether it's switching on a light to look for keys in a room or solving Fermat's theorem or writing a new symphony, if you are creating something that solves a problem, you are by definition creative. What differs then is the style in which you're creative, the capability or technical skills that you are bringing. But everybody's creative. And the important thing is we need to let everybody know that they're creative and contributing to the group because that's the essence then of what drives human beings. This is the key thing about the curtain theory is people need to be part of a group and they need to be recognized to be part of a group to actually make the most of them. If you actually want to dismiss somebody, if you want to actually destroy their self-esteem, then you only need to do two things. You either don't let them be part of the problem-solving group or indeed, within that problem-solving group, you shame them in terms of ridiculing their problem-solving capability. So that, to me, is a critical thing for leaders to understand. Quite often we hear this phrase about employee engagement. Employees don't want to be engaged. They want to be involved. They want to be part of the group. They want to contribute to the group and to have that contribution recognized because they are themselves creative problem solvers. And that's the key thing that Curtin's work tells us is that we want to actually involve people, not just engage them. And that's the, that's the essence of diversity and inclusion. I would like to add to what Ewan was saying and, and dissect the word innovation a bit more. In popular culture and press, we tend to conflate creativity and innovation and new all together. And we tend to use the word innovation too much, in my opinion. We, we put innovation on the word centers, and, and we call people innovative just because they're doing something exciting and different and, and new. But I would like to push back on that definition a little bit and, and contrast level and capacity. So we're talking about innovation in, in popular terms. The word innovation is really about capacity. But going along Curtin's adaption innovation theory, we're talking about style. And, and so actually when we contrast innovation with adaption, we have more meaning towards innovation and what new means because we can have innovative new ideas, but we can also have adaptive new ideas. We can be creative both innovatively and adaptively. Uh, creativity is a capacity, but we can do it within our own style. And I'm very interested and, and delighted, actually, that you have said that we're all creative. Uh, I think that's a very important point. And because I was thinking about the, the, the world of music, which I know a little bit about as, as a keen amateur musician, within that world, musicians sort of argue about who's the most creative, you know, because if you're, if you're a jazz musician for example you might uh, you might sp spend a lot of your time extemporizing and, and and some people say well that's creative you know because you're you know because you're you're making this stuff up uh, whereas if you're a classical musician as, as i am you know you're reading you're reading black dots on a page and and playing something that's you know that's been written by a composer probably hundreds of years ago you're still solving a problem interestingly even in that example because you're solving the problem of how to take that music off the page and make it into something beautiful 
so even in in that so-called creative industry there is argument about which people in the industry are creative and which aren't and the reality is that as as you and said very well and as you reinforce kurt we're all creative and and that is a really really crucial point i think yeah well because i mean if you look at bach you could say that bach really extemporized off off of structure right i mean that's why that's why mathematicians mathematicians love bach because to some extent he's predictable and and even even Mozart said creativity, you know, in the innovative sense, creativity is is overrated, because he again would stick to certain patterns and then basically join existing dots in novel ways. He was never really doing anything, as far as he was concerned, that was that was extremely radical. Yeah, and and a contemporary version looking at comedy. If, if comedy is a problem to be solved, adaption innovation theory should apply, right? Uh, the, the essence of a joke and, and making someone laugh. And so comparing who I would argue is more innovative, uh, the late and great Robin Williams, who could bounce around from character to character to character in, in just a matter of seconds, really. So if he's more innovative, I would say the more adaptive comedian would be Jay Leno, who could tweak any joke to fit any audience. Yeah, that, that's a that's a really good point, a really good example. So what that really suggests, and and I think we we said this a little bit in the first episode as well, is that you know it doesn't matter where the team is, what industry they're in, what they do, sports, military, industry, whatever it is, these rules do work. They do apply. Perhaps rules is the wrong word, but uh, but they do work. Two things got me passionate about Curtin's work. First of all is it, it, uh, it allowed me to make sense of the world. All of a sudden I was going, ah, now I understand. The second thing which built on the first is now I have the power to predict because it allows you to start to see patterns in human behavior. And because going back to the first thing, while times change, human behaviors don't, you are then in a position then to be more helpful or more helpful to others. So for, so for example now, the, popular, the current popular press is very focused on, on successful innovation. And again, there are, for every, it's, it's survivorship bias in terms of those, the things that are being selected to be talked about. One in 10 entrepreneurial um, uh, organizations are successful. Nine out of 10 fail. But it's that one out of 10, which is that brilliant star that we focus on. Yet when you, when you come back to it, nearly all of the major impacts that, that come from the world of science have actually been founded on somebody who has been more adaptive, more cautious, more structured in a lot of their research. So I think, Kurt, you were talking about uh, Edison and Tesla. Edison, by far the most productive. Our world is a, an Edison world. He did I don't have the exact data in front of me, but he had, he's got almost more patents than any other individual in the U.S. Patent Office. Very highly adaptive uh, individual. If you look at the first woman to get a Nobel Prize, in fact, she may even have the first PhD in France again, the first woman to get a Nobel Prize, in fact, the first, the first person to get two Nobel Prizes in different sciences was Marie Curie very adaptive in terms of the way that she was doing her work all around the periodic table going through it in a very very structured way but the interesting thing about Marie Curie is she was married to a very innovative husband her husband never finished his PhD 
And in fact, he was he was killed by looking the wrong way down a road in Paris and hit by a horse and cart. Fairly typical innovative behavior. Innovators, they tend to die young. So one of the things that we need to do is to recognize that wherever your problem-solving style lies on the spectrum, you have a role to play, not only in terms of survivors, survivorship of the species, but also in terms of building your own self-fulfillment. Yeah, and I want to add something to what Ewan just said about the predictive nature of KAI. We can predict because we measure something well, and we have a good theory to back it up. And KAI is a little bit different uh, in its approach to looking at people uh, think differently because it's based off adaption innovation theory. Many learning style inventories out there, personality assessments out there, they're focused on Young's work uh, or derivatives of Young's work, which is if I understand myself better, I can become a better person and a better leader. And I also can learn more about you and choose to accept you or tolerate you. But adaption innovation theory is a bit different. When Curtin did his first study, he was actually looking at how teams work together to enact change. And the theory is built around that notion that different people solve problems differently. And if I know my score, and I know your score, I can predict how we interact with each other in managing change. And, and so there's a bit of difference here in how we use the KAI in the science of teams. I, I agree with that. And, and actually, I found, without it sounding like a parlor game, I have found a good way of getting a very crude understanding as, do is my preferred style relatively more innovative or relatively more adaptive? And it was actually given to me by Thomas Edison. Not personally, but it was given to me by Thomas Edison. And Thomas Edison said, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. That's a very adaptive perspective on the world because adapters just want to generally get their head down, work within the system, not make waves, which is why often they don't stand out because they just want to be part of the group and get things done. The reverse of that, of course, is genius is 99% inspiration, 1% perspiration. It just comes to you like a gift from the gods, your radical thinking. That's on the more innovative side. If you believe, like Edison, that genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration, then you may have a more adaptive style. If, on the other hand, you believe that genius is 1% perspiration and 99% inspiration, that it comes down as a gift from a god, then you are more likely to have a preferred innovative problem-solving style. And having this information helps you then be a better contributor to your problem-solving group and more useful than to your colleagues. You've been listening to the KAI Foundation 5 podcast, part two, with our special guests, Dr. Kurt Friedel and Dr. Ewan Jenkins. If you found the discussion interesting, you can find out more about the KAI system and its first-class team development potential at www.kaicenter.com. In the meantime, part three of the KAI Foundation 5 podcast, Driving Innovation, will be along very soon, so please subscribe and keep listening.